Let us pray. Holy God, we have sung a great song that so many children sing, Vacation Bible School, about Father Abraham, and we have gotten energized, energize our spirits as well through what you have to tell us this morning and through the hope that awaits us on Easter morning. In Christ's name, amen. So let's start out reading about Father Abraham. Doing from the Hebrew Bible, so I have to go back to go forward. So this is Genesis 17, the first seven verses. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am El Shaddai. Walk in my ways and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will make you exceedingly numerous. Abraham threw himself on his face, and God spoke to him further. As for me, this is my covenant with you. You shall be the father of a multitude of nations, and you shall no longer be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I make you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fertile and make nations of you, and kings shall come forth from you. And I will maintain my covenant between me and you and your offspring to come as an everlasting covenant throughout the ages to be God to you and to your offspring to come. And then our New Testament reading is from the Gospel of Mark. Please rise for the Gospel reading. We're reading Mark 8, verses 31 to 38. I think actually... 31 to 38. Then Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said all this quite openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, but Turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. And then he called the crowd with his disciples, and he said to them, If anyone wants to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their life? Yet, indeed, what can they give in return for their life? 
those who are ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the, in his, in the glory of his Father and the holy angels. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. I recently wrote some new radio ads that I recorded down at the radio station, two radio stations. And as usual, I wanted to make them hospitable, welcoming. But I also wanted to mark our identity as the Presbyterian Church in town. The thing is that God chooses people and organizations for particular purposes. And that means being set apart, not merely popular. We're not welcoming or hospitable just to be popular in town. So what do we, we have to ask ourselves, what exactly is unique about our particular discipleship, about Christian discipleship? You know, sometimes Presbyterians are considered the frozen and snooty congregation in town, in many towns, the establishment congregation, because of our economic and educational and social standing and experience. In the last community I served, fortunately that role was taken over by the Methodists, because in that town, which was known for its big annual walking horse festival, the owners of all the big walking horse farms were all Methodists, so they were obviously the kingpins in town, the high, high cotton of town. So we Presbyterians didn't occupy quite that lofty a stature. Here in Texas, I'm well aware that identity is so important that it can become a kind of historic mix of fact and myth. Jesse Chisholm, I read about Jesse Chisholm the other day. He was not a Texan, he was an Oklahoman, but he was famous for the cattle and freighting trails that were named after him. His legacy actually was in a different direction. It was his treatment of other people. That's the identity that's marked on his gravestone. On his travels from Oklahoma as far south as Fort Stockton, Texas, he was said to have never left anybody stranded by the side of the road who needed help. Regardless of race or creed, without thought of any kind of reward, he helped everybody that he came across. The identity that Chisholm left behind was captured in the simple motto that he so often stated and, and acted upon. It was, no man ever came to my door cold and went away unclad. No one ever came to my door hungry and went away hungry. Identity matters because the 
way we think of ourselves is shapes what we do in society, how we are in relationship with the world. And so our own identities as Christians, with, with our own identities as Christians in mind, I want us to consider Abraham and also the lesson from Mark today. We'll start with Abraham, Genesis. You know, last week we had Noah. And if Noah is to be remembered as identified as the guy who God made a covenant with over a flood, well, then Abraham has to be remembered as the guy that God made a covenant with over a baby. Noah was chosen for a purpose. Noah will be forever identified as the partner of God in the covenant of the rainbow. Well, now in chapter 17 of Genesis, did you know that the word covenant is used something like 13 times? It was used several times in just a few verses that we read this morning. So clearly, covenant is a big deal between Abraham and God. It's a big identifier between Abraham and God, just like with Noah. And there's multiple levels of this covenant. At first, there's just a partnership between God and Abraham. And then God expands the covenant to be with God and Abraham's family. And ultimately, it grows to include all future generations that follow Abraham, all whole nations, even. Abraham must walk blamelessly before God. That's a condition that we read at the very beginning. And eventually there will be other conditions that are mentioned in later verses, but for now, there's just the one requirement to be performed, and Abraham does that immediately. He prostrates himself. Now, God has a side of the promise, the covenant to perform, and that is to make Abraham the father of a vast family, and even those future nations that will come so long into the future, generation upon generation that are not yet born. And Abraham gets a name change. Why? Because of this. He gets a name change from Abram to Abraham. His new identity will be the name Abraham. And what's the source of that identity? Is it the walking blamelessly? He didn't get a name change for walking blamelessly. He got a name change for becoming the father of generations and nations. That's how he's identified. When we sang the Father Abraham song this morning, that's how we identified him. And how did we identify ourselves? As people among those offspring. It's a mutual identification for being the father of nations. His new identity relates to the legacy that he has that God is promising. And the new identity is not based on something that he's going to do on his own. It's something that God is doing through him. It's based on a purpose for which God has chosen him. The purpose of being Father Abraham. And yes, as Paul points out in the letter to the Romans, Abraham had faith. 
He had faith before there was ever a Torah or anything else that all the people, the, the chosen people, lived according to in later generations. He had faith, and that was a powerful identity. But in this instant that we've read about this morning in the Old Testament, his identity is based on this thing that God is going to do through him. It's based on the usefulness of Abraham for God's larger purpose. We also read Mark, and we came across some a particular set of identity or identity question there, but even before what we read, at the very beginning of um, uh, verse 27, Jesus says that he asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others, one of the great prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say I am? Identity. Who did the people, who did the disciples identify Jesus as being? Who do the people of Galilee say he is? Who do the disciples say they is? And of course, Peter speaks up. You know, Peter's always the one with his hand in the air. You're the Messiah. Yes, Jesus is the Messiah. Christians believe that the true identity of Jesus of Nazareth is as the Messiah. That means, of course, the identity of Peter is the one who recognizes Jesus as the Messiah. That's who he is. And we're brothers and sisters with Peter in that regard because that's who we say Jesus is. Our identities as Christians, well, they're not just that we believe in teachings that Jesus gave. It's not just that we're comforted by events of healing that Jesus did or that he was born in that quaint manger in the pageant that we have at Christmas. We are identified as people who believe that Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth was and is the Messiah, God with us, Emmanuel, the one from whom grace issued into the world on the cross. We identify as people who believe this. But you know, Jesus wants us to identify as something more than that. He says it's no good to simply believe these things with our minds or our feelings. That's easy. That's cheap. Cheap discipleship. He says the people who truly identify as his believers and disciples are people who deny themselves and take up the cross. So what is it we're supposed to deny? He talks about life. We're supposed to deny our lives. There are two Greek words used for our one word, life. One is zoe. means your physical, living, breathing life. The other is spelled P-S-Y-C-H-E, pronounced in Greek, suke. It's your spirit, your heart, your personal essence, your, the sentient aspect of your life. 
It's the thing that separates us from us and the animals. Yes, I know you love Fluffy, your pet, but your pet Fluffy is not a sentient being. Jesus says sublimating our selfness that sets us apart. That's what he wants us to deny. Following Jesus sets us apart. It's a different road. We don't simply incorporate Christian beliefs into our personal philosophy for life alongside all the other the self-help books and the spiritual teachings and all the things we might read. Christianity does not help us fulfill personal goals or plans that we decide outside of discipleship. Belief in that sense is a matter, belief in the sense that Jesus is talking about is a matter of a personal devotion to the journey and the essence of Christ as the Messiah. The point of denying devotion to our own cause for devotion to Jesus' cause. And that brings back in all the things that he taught us. We have that kind of solidarity with him when we come to know ourselves by identifying with the way he lived and walked. We come to know who we are as we begin to understand who he was. That's a very rigorous bar. That's a high bar to jump. That takes a lot of devotion and discipline. And not everybody wants to do that. Some people want an easier Christianity. But that's what Jesus is talking about in Mark. Since the Gospels were written for audiences that were fledgling worship communities, we always have to remember that the gospel-writing apostles like Mark were not just read, writing things that were legacies for us to read in the, in the Bible today, but also were, reading, were writing things to be heard in the moment at that time by worshiping communities. Mark and the others are prodding people towards spiritual formation. These words of Jesus are important for the development of spiritual formation. Selfness, denial, did not just identify individuals, but whole communities, congregations. Even in the 13th century, seems like a long time since Mark's gospel, a long time ago, but as late as the 13th century, pilgrimages, and the idea of clothing oneself in Christ. Well, those were important aspects of spiritual formation. These days, a lot of Protestant pastors don't like the idea of spiritual formation. Theologians talk about how it's not really relevant. It doesn't lead to the revealed word of God, they say, because it means you're looking for God in, already inside of you. But that's not what it is. I think it's important for us to identif identify ourselves by making ourselves available to God, opening ourselves up to God, just like Abraham did, just like Noah did. 
It's important because then we are useful to God. And we find the purpose for which each and every one of us was made. During Lent, giving up something is always popular. It's popular as a practice and as a theology. It can be an identity ritual where we're scraping away some things we need to get rid of about ourselves or we're adding on things that we need to become. It may even be the opportunity to start some critical personal discipline that's really hard and uncomfortable and it takes that kind of rigor of a season like Lent for us to actually do it. We may not accomplish those things as New Year's resolutions, but during Lent we might have a better chance. But actually this is about more than that. Giving up things at Lent is about more than just that. Self-denial at Lent identifies us as people who do not think that our personal self-derived goals and plans and opinions are as important as God's goals, plans, and opinions. It's humbling to say, I'm going to take this part of myself away and give it up for God. It's spirit opening at the same time. It leaves a place for us to let God in. And I think most of all, the big thing about giving up self-denial, especially at, at Easter, I mean at Lent, this time of year, is that it's preparation. It's preparation for Easter, after all. And at Easter, we will all identify ourselves as people who have gained hope through the resurrection of Christ Jesus on that Easter morning. So, Jesus is heading toward Jerusalem where he will take up his cross for us and his disciples, we should take one up too. Amen.